Welcome to Garden Views. Interesting conversations with interesting people who have done and or are doing interesting things. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome into another episode of Garden Views, and we have one of our returning guests. We have attorney and colleague of mine, Farzad Panshiri, and we're going to sort of pick up where we left off uh, during the uh, entertainment IP trademark episode, uh, which was very well received. Uh, So part of this will be sort of a part two of that, and then part of it will be sort of Farzad's journey, because he's uh, tri-continental. and really, quattro, uh, quad continental, but we won't get into that part, but that's top secret. That, that'll be for another show, I suppose. Um, and uh, he's going to do a little compare and contrast uh, for us because he's uh, been an attorney in more than one country, not just more than one state, but more than one country. Yes, you heard me right. So, Farzad, first of all, thank you. How are you tonight? I'm good. Thanks for having me again. Oh, it's great to see you. And, and, you know, I saw Farzad on LinkedIn. Somebody else now interviewed him on a little interview segment. So another person who I've interviewed who will now exceed me in, in this field. So that's terrific. I, I, I love giving the youth a leg up um, so they can step on me on, on their way up. That's that's fine. Um, so last last time we, we left off, sort of, we realized we'd gone 90 minutes and really only felt like we scratched the scratch of, intellectual property law. And I don't think that we can really do much more on that. And neither one of us does patents, but, you know, maybe I'll find someone who does at some point for that. Um, but I think for entertainment purposes, patents don't come into play as, as often, but copyrights do. And and we never really got into probably is, is the most common experience or, or exposure someone might have to a copyright issue. And that's typically what's now called the DMCA takedown notices, which stands for the Digital Media Copyright Act. So uh, first of all, am I correct in that? And and second of all, if you could just give a brief outline as to what that is. Yes, the DMCA, um, that's correct. Uh, It's it's connected. So uh, to to explain that, I think we have to take a step back. So we have to explain direct infringement of copyrights and secondary infringement. So direct infringement means you are the person who's infringing. Secondary infringement means um, you are not directly infringing, but you could uh, you could be secondary liable. And there are two two ways you can do that. It's, one of it is contributory liability. So in in that regard, you need um, intent, and you need to materially contribute to the infringing use of the copyright. So to to um, spice it up and to like shorten it up a little bit, you need knowledge and participation. And the second second way you can be secondary liable is vicarious liability. For that, you need control. So which contains two elements, right to stop someone from an infringing use and the ability to stop someone from an infringing use. In addition to that, you need a direct financial benefit from the infringing use of the copyright. So to shorten this one up, you need control and a direct direct benefit from that. And because of these secondary liabilities in connection with internet, 
<laughs> I think that caused a lot of problems. That's why the DMCA Act came into place. Uh, yes, because, of, uh, the platforms, right? Correct, exactly. I mean, literally everything regarding internet, if you're providing a platform, if you're the internet provider, anything, and someone is infringing, you could be the theoretically secondary liable because you're providing the platform. So that was that was that was a big problem, and that's why the MCA Act came into place. And so well, let, let, let's yeah. let's slow down for just a second to let my mind catch up and see if I understand it right. It sounds a little bit like republisher liability versus publisher liability in defamation cases. So would the first case would an example be? I'm a I'm a producer. I create. Uh, I basically copy whatever Star Wars. Let's just say I, I completely copy Star Wars. It's total infringement. Uh, and, and then for some reason, Studio X. Let's just say Hulu for whatever reason decides Disney isn't giving us enough of the bundling money, so we're gonna we're gonna run your your infringement, which they would never do. But let's so I'm the direct. Uh, infringer and 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 Hulu would be the vicarious liability uh, performer in there. Um, this is probably much more common on these platforms like Facebook, Twitch, YouTube, where you pretty much can put anything on there and you you have your terms and conditions. And I think that's sort of what where you were going to get to. I just wanted to sort of try to make that distinction if it's exactly with like a real life example which you know might be easy for folks to understand i think the before i mean without connecting that to the internet i think there was a i remember there was a case uh where um so someone i think those video uh, video recording machines or, or dva or whatever they're called um they just just popped up and people started recording tv shows which are copyrighted Mm -hmm. So the question was, and the people sued the, the provider of those machines, which are recording, and, and the court said um, they are not liable. They, they, they did not infringe directly, and they were not sued because of secondary liability. And that was, that's, I think, the, 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 a pretty good di distinction. So basically when they the said... The person you were clicking on the record button... You're directly infringing. You're the last person who did the last act and the last infringing act. Right. So we or just created something to record, not to yeah. infringe. It's sort of like the gun manufacturer saying, we just we just invented something to create something to shoot. We didn't tell anyone to shoot a person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, for, for, for like video recording, etc. I mean, it, it does not necessarily need to be for infringing purposes. Sure. Um, guns, I mean... Well, they don't. I mean, you could use it to shoot birds or targets or whatever. But I don't really mean to get into all of that. That's a guns is its own issue that's replete. But it it's the same exact argument. It's just the. I mean, the the, the context is less life and death, uh, even if you put your life savings into a particular project. Um, in which case, you probably shouldn't be uh, copying somebody else's work. <laughs> Uh, but I think that that clarifies the distinction whether you put the whether whether you are the person who, who pushes the record button uh, or not. Uh, you're just providing the tools, basically. Right. So, I wonder if it's less clear. You know, you get you you, you buy the you, people used to buy the bootleg. You know, DVDs. They probably still do. You know, bootleg CDs, and you know they're not the recorder either, and they're they're a reseller. But uh, you know, they could be both because they know that it's. Um, 
it's a bootleg and they're selling it and they're putting it out to the public. So uh, there, it's one of those cases where they're certainly not the original infringer, but they have probably as much control, but they're at least second. They're at least vicariously liable. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, the DMCA Act itself, uh, it has like four, four main provisions. It's 512A. That is about uh, trans, uh, transitory digital network communications. So basically, this one's protecting the internet providers. Right. Because the internet providers, I mean, they obviously, they, they help you to transfer the information, right? Uh, transmit, uh, routing, uh, or providing connections to, to different people. And that's uh, 512, so that's a safe harbor for them. It has certain requirements, of course, uh, they, they need to comply with. And then there is a 512, uh, section 512B, um, which is the system caching uh safe harbor so uh you have if if you so for videos for example you have the that buffering or that caching part um which is temporarily uh, saving the parts of the of, of the copyrighted work um, on your system and that's that's for that and then um 500 Section 512C, I think that's that's what we're talking about. That's the important part. And 512D uh, is, is about links. And they're very similar to each other. So 512C, that's the part where um, information residing on systems or networks at the direction of users. Um, that covers that part. So that can be I, that can be any kind of storage. It can be website. That can be Facebook, YouTube, anything. Um, where you're the platform, where you're the provider, and you're offering the other people to post things, um, storage things, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it has it has specific requirements, uh, which are which are important. I mean, so to 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 be able to use that safe harbor and not be secondary liable, you need to comply with those requirements. Right. And uh, 512C for for the websites or for the providers of storage of information and 512D for um, links or so hyperlinks, they're very similar. Okay. And is that where this DMCA takedown notice uh, protocol sort of fits in? That That's part of the deal is that you have to have some process in place if you're a platform for a content creator um, to say, hey, you, that person was not able to use my stuff. Exactly, exactly. That's, that's where it comes into play. So the requirements are um, to be actually able to uh, use that safe harbor. Uh, the service provider does not need to have actual knowledge of the infringing activity or um, constructive knowledge of the infringing inf- activity. If they obtain uh, actual or constructive knowledge, they need to expeditiously remove or disable access to the material. Um, that's that's one part. Uh, next requirement is if um, that that the service provider does not receive a financial benefit from the infringing activity, um, and that he has basically right and control uh, of of that of, of that activity. If they can't control it, of course, they cannot do anything. So it'd be and stricter the, if, the con- if the 
allegedly infringing um, content creator, not the original content creator, uh, has a Patreon or, or gets super chats or even uh, gets enough views to to share ad revenue with YouTube because you're benefiting from the content or is is not is that not what they mean? I think that that's uh, that might be in reference to one of the cases. I remember that uh, what was it, Grokster or something? Um, Wrong guy. You you could you could <laughs> download uh, you could literally download everything or, or it was it was another platform. Napster. Uh, not sure if, if that was one of one of those those uh, those websites or if it was a separate if it was a website offering uh, cloud services, but they were. They were directly stating in their advertisement. They were basically saying, "Oh, you can download it, like uh, like hundred dollars expensive software which are copyrighted." So they right. were literally saying, uh, "Come use our services. You can get the, all these co- free copyrighted stuff, uh, which is actually copyrighted, but you can get it here for uh, if you sign up for free." So I think that might be <laughs> that might be what is meant by that eventually. And yeah, the, the third uh, third requirement is of course uh, notification. So the um, upon notification or or claimed infringement um, that that the service provider needs to uh, immediately remove or disable access to that material. And uh, these are these are the requirements. And in addition um, to that, the provider needs to have. Uh, a designated agent uh, registered with the U.S. Copyright Office, so certain information needs to be provided to the Copyright Office, and that agent needs to be designated. And the last requirement, uh, the service provider needs a list, a uh, list of requirements uh, for for that takedown, basically. So that's that's basically the full list. But the important part is, of course, I mean, it's difficult to show if the provider had um, actual knowledge, constructive knowledge. How do you prove that? Right. Uh, or if if they had had any financial benefits, if they are not really like, let's say, stupid enough to say, "Hey, uh, I am infringing. I, I offer infringing content. Come and use my services." Uh, so those parts are a little bit difficult. But on that, is there any record keeping requirement? That let's just say that they had no reason to know that me on my YouTube channel that I infringe. But they get one DMCA, and let's just say I was not. I mean, I assume there's a. Well, I know that there's a, a method for the you to dispute whether or not you're actually infringing or not, and it, it may take a short period of time. It may take forever because there's no there's no time period for the platform to actually respond, as far as I know. So that could be a fool's errand. But anyway, let's just say YouTube had no idea that Jeff Lippman is an infringer, but they got one DMCA notice and they took down my stuff. Are they now on notice as like a dog bite? The, the one bite rule has been satisfied so they can only use that defense once? Or can they say, listen, a billion people use YouTube around the country. We, we don't, we can't possibly keep records like that. I think that kind of depends on, on, on the rules they're having. I mean, each website, they have their, their own rules, but they need to certainly have, have those rules uh, and state them. If, if, if someone is infringing, take down the stuff. If they keep continuously infringing, uh, to eventually just delete that account, that, that, that possible account. I know that, that many providers are doing that. Yeah, um, they have strikes and, oftentimes. I mean, they don't correct. have to, but I imagine that's what they're trying to do to say what is sort of de minimis or what is a pattern. And I think I think they basically have three strike rules, like three strikes and you're out. 
within a period of time. I think the reason why they might do that is probably the um, the constructive knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> so it might not be actual knowledge that they know. Okay, this person is infringing, but if someone keeps constantly infringing and you still let them on your platform. Uh, that could eventually be seen as constructive knowledge. Yeah, no, I agree. It's definitely to, you know, basically the scenario I just said, they have no idea that Jeff Lippman and friends gets one notice, but they have a billion users and they can't keep track of it. But at three, at that point, the, you know, you know, at, at two, there should have been, you know, that, you know, at one, maybe there's a, a yellow flag, but it's a pale yellow flag. At two, there's sort of a, you know, uh, it gets more orange, but at three, red light, that, that, that goes on your do not fly list, so to speak. Um, and you know, once one carrier does it and does it successfully, they all sort of copy. Everybody reinvents the wheel, and somebody has to be first. And probably, probably somebody in some room said, three strikes and you're out." Okay, sounds good. We'll see. Uh, I mean, yeah. I'm guessing it was it was more contentious and took more time than that. But uh, that's that's probably. I bet if you were flying the wall, that's more or less what happened. I want to quick quire a couple things to you that are, and you can either debunk these myths or bunk these myths. I never hear anyone say I'm bunking a myth. I only hear debunking. So I'm not sure if I'm using the word properly, but who's to say I'm not. Um, so the seven second rule, if you use something for seven seconds or less, it's not infringement. Seven seconds. I, I would not, I, would, I wouldn't say no. Um, so it, 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 we're talking about copyright infringement, right? Yep. Uh, and, I think that really depends uh, again, and that's that's something. Uh, copyright infringement it, it depends on, on on a lot of factors. So, um, how much did you copy? Uh, is is the material substantially similar to the copyrighted work? I mean, taking a picture just takes takes a millisecond, and copying that might also just take a millisecond. So, uh, this so, yeah. seven so, second rules. I think there's no so there is make sense. To there is no seven-second rule. There's just a seven-second yeah. belief. So uh, it depends how much you copy, how how uh, if it's substantially similar, if you had access to the to that content, and then like regarding fair use, etc. I guess that's also fair use plays a little bit of a role. Um, um, the quantity of how much you copied was it the heart of the work? Uh, was it kind of allowed? Is it like the, is fair use provide some? Uh, some insight, like was it fair use eventually? Was it allowed? So I think a lot of factors are playing a role. But um, in specific, the I remember that there was a there was some jurisprudence that someone. So uh, I know there was a book. I don't remember who it was about, but they tried to promote the book, and um, they. Some newspaper got the information about the heart of the book, and it was like one really uh, important information: what that person did or what not. And they disclosed that information in the newspaper. So that was like a tiny little fraction or part of the of the whole book, but that was the heart of the work, and it was still considered uh, copyright infringement. So, okay. I I know that there's the the de minimis case from the movie Seven about a photograph that was in the background of a scene and. You know, the argument was it's barely there and nobody bought their ticket to, to, to see the movie seven to see a photograph in the background of one one scene. Um, so I think they just tried you know, to use. So, go ahead. Yeah. It, it, I remember also there was a there was another case with a, a pinball uh, machine. 
in the background of a movie and it was visible for a couple of seconds. And I think that's where the seven second rule might, might come from. It was just visible shortly and uh, really like one or two seconds or something. And the whole movie was like hours. Right. It could also be something that the music industry has let it be known that if you play part of our song or the movie industry, if you play up to seven seconds, I mean, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're not going to bother you for something that small. And, and maybe that's gotten around and it's turned into a rule when it's, it's just maybe a certain industry standard. And I'm glad you, you clarified copyright because if, you know, if, if this was an audio show, uh, rather a video show and we displayed the Nike logo in the corner of the screen for two seconds, it might look like Nike's sponsoring us. And that would be infringement regardless of the amount of time. Now, if you were wearing a Nike shirt, that's not sponsoring Nike. Any normal person would know that just happens to be the shirt you're wearing that day. Um, so, but even then, sometimes you'll see some producers who will blur out brand names on it, probably not because they're worried about infringement, probably because they're worried about alienating or pissing off their other sponsors who, who might be in competition with Nike, or they may just be saying, we love Mikey, but if they want their their logo on our show, they need to pay for it. They need to buy ads. Um, yeah. So that's that. And there's also the exceptions for fair use. So you know, if, uh, none of what we're talking about is is you know being able to use for for fair use. You know, so you're the local news and you're covering a Billy Joel concert and you hear a piano man playing for you know 18 seconds. That's not copyright infringement because it's the the news segment. But uh, you know. Jeff live streaming might be, or probably is, whether or not Billy Joel cares or not, or his record company cares or not, is a different story. All right, so other possible myths that we're going to bunk or debunk. I see all the time people go or they print or they have displayed on screen, I do not own the rights to this, and they think that that's going to insulate them. Is there any truth to that statement in written or oral form that insulates someone from infringement? No, no. If if they if they are copying if they're copying the copyrighted work, um, and it is substantially similar to the copyrighted work, it doesn't matter whether they're um, they're saying, "Oh, uh, it's not my work. I'm just representing the work." Even if they say that it's the work of that other person, uh, if they don't have a license, if they don't have the permission from the other party, from the copyright owner, to copy their work, to display their work, to perform their work. Uh, then it is copyright infringement. Right. Now, I haven't litigated a, a case in open court in a number of years, but even I remember one of the exceptions to the hearsay rule is a statement against self-interest, which is basically an admission. Um, you're basically making an admission when you do that. I do not own the rights to this, and you go ahead and do it, if you're so you're infringing anyway. Now, whether or not... Party admission, yeah. yeah. Now, if I sing... Mississippi Queen on Facebook, do they care? Probably not. Um, but if I sang Mississippi Queen on TikTok and somehow I got, you know, a million followers and monetized it, maybe they'd want a piece of that action. Uh, you know, I don't know. And they'd be within their rights to do it. Even if I said, I don't own the, the rights to this music. Um, all right. So that were, those were a couple of like the, the frequent myths that, that I, that I sort of see out there, which, which people think, Oh, well, that, that, that's definitely, uh, you know, that, that insulates me and that's not really the case. One addition in that regard. So I think it, it, 
what you said, that's exactly one of, one of the main factors. And number one, because it's part of fair use, the fourth factor, the most important one, whether, whether, what, whether your infringement has, um, or infringing the copyrighted work, whether that has any potential effect on, on the market of the copyrighted work. So if you're a private person and you're just posting something and you're not actually commercializing it, you're not having any benefit from it, it won't probably have any effect on, on, on the market of the actual copyrighted work. To the contrary, uh, people might get interested and they say, okay, I want to eventually buy that book or, or get that copyrighted work. Right. And uh, in addition to that, you don't have money. You're not a business. <laughs> right. You're just a private person. But the important thing is it's not about monetizing it for yourself. I mean, that's a factor, but it's about diminishing the monetary value to the content creator. So as you pointed out earlier, when someone else revealed a major plot point to a forthcoming book, they probably did not commit enough copyright infringement by volume, but because they took the heart of the matter, they did. They spoiled the book. And basically, even if even if that newspaper or whatever didn't make a dollar off of that story, they still potentially killed other people buying the book because it was already ruined. The ending was ruined. Um, so that was the mon that was the monetary issue. So even if you ran a free web website and you, you know, showed, I don't know, uh, you know, 10 minutes of Doctor Strange, you know, on, you know, a day before it came out, somehow you got that and you leaked, you know, the ending, even if you were free, um, you, you still could have affected it, um, you know, to some extent. And obviously the larger your membership and your followership and if something went quote, viral, end quote, uh, that could still affect the monetary gain to the content creator. And with cop with registered copyright infringement, there are there's statutory damages. You don't have to show financial damages if you can show loss. Um, the interesting thing is because of that, because new content gets you apply for the copyright then and you may not get the copyright for several months or a year, you may think you got away scot-free with it and get hit with a lawsuit, you know, 14 months later. Because yep. the, the register copyright, does it date back to the day you file for the application or no? When you file for the application, no. I mean, the, um, the, you, get, you get the copyright with the creation of the work and um, with fixing it in a tangible medium. But um, then you file the copyright registration. So you can have the copyrights before. <laughs> right. Can you still use federal copyright infringement suits even without the register copyright? Oh yeah, I mean, you cannot you cannot sue some anyone. Uh, you cannot enforce your copyrights before court if you do not have a copyright registration. So, so, so you see what I'm saying? I I released Doctor Strange, you know, Multiverse of Madness, whatever it was. Just to say it was June first. I have no idea. And I and I spoil the ending May thirty first. So as of you know, they finish it. They you know they file for the copyright, whatever, two weeks before June 1st, but they don't actually get the registered copyright until, you know, whatever, October 1st. I've already spoiled it, but they don't have their registered copyright till later. Can I backdate my suit under federal law or do I have to find other grounds to file trespass or, or, or something like that? Uh, and in my personal opinion, I do not think that it shouldn't, that it doesn't matter when you file the copyright. It is important when you when you got the copyright when when you received the copyright.
it's not the copyright registration itself. The copyright registration, you can you can also not you can have your copyrights and you cannot file for a copyright registration. And when someone infringes, then you can say, okay, I'll file a copyright and then I sue that person. Okay. Uh, the only problem is detriment is I think you have like a few detriments and I think you cannot rely on statutory damages. Uh, that's one of the right of the and, and attorney's fees and you have to prove damages, but. And, and, and you're right. There is, there is no grandfather. And so people out there are probably like, huh? That's why there's another statute that says any redistribution or infringement is subject to criminal penalty, uh, which can be subject to X amount of years in prison and up to a $250,000 fine. So there's criminal statutes, which are regardless of the registration status and and there's actually Recording Industry of America and Motion Picture Association of America special police. I mean, they're, they're designated to make arrests and press charges and, 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 and you know, and all around the, all around the country. Um, and they used to actually go to flea markets and, and, you know, look for those booths selling those bootlegs. Uh, I, I'm sure the whole world has changed. It's more probably cyber now. Anyway, so that, that's why there's the difference between the criminal act and the, Civil action. We sort of uh, brainstormed it out here, uh, you know, live and in living color. Um, or to those of you listening to download, just on audio. Um, but we didn't practice this. All right. Uh, so, others, first of all, is there anything else in copyright or trademark that, that you wanted to cover? No, I think we, we covered quite a broad range. Okay. So, with general entertainment law, I mean, one thing I want, you know, th- this is mostly contracts and leverage. There are agents that often represent talent. Uh, Agents in some states, maybe all, are required to be attorneys. That doesn't mean they have to have law practices. The agency might be their law practice. That might be their their job. Uh, Others, maybe not. Uh, Maybe they don't have to be licensed as an attorney to get that license. I don't know about all 50 states and, and the district, but I do know that in Maryland, for example, you need to be an attorney to be certain types of talent agents and not others. Um, so those of you who've gone to the mall and then, you know, you, your 15 year old was told they can be a model and you sign one of those contracts. Modeling in Maryland, they don't need to be, those agents don't need to be attorneys, but sports agents do. Um, so uh, there's that. And as far as, so I don't think that we really can do an expose on contracts, but you know, Obviously, the bigger you get, the more leverage you have. Um, every now and then you'll hear of an outlier case where some sort of fundamental fairness came in and the American Idol season one sort of comes to mind because that those terms were so onerous. Uh, and that's that's the exception. It's, it's really only because there was so everybody watched American Idol. The same thing happens to startup bands and new bands and new talent. Every day, all over the world, still to this day. But because it was American Idol Day, um, you know, the, the courts maybe stretched a little bit, you know. Uh, and I don't believe that that's been precedent. I think they just settled it and, you know, American Idol took care of it going forward. And, uh, you know, I assume some of the other shows have as well. Do you, do you have any any light to cast on this topic? No. Okay. I, I, I'm not even sure if I was here when, when American Idol was... was <laughs> was displayed in the TVs. Yeah, it was, well, I think it's still on in some form. Anyway, yeah, it was probably, it was probably around 2002 when it was season one. Anyway. Yeah, um, I, I was certainly not here. I was back, back in Germany then. Right, you were alive. You just weren't here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
how it's done in the U.S. Yeah, so so this is mostly contracts, and yes, there's often you know you, you and there's you know there's there's employees, there's uh, there's independent contractors, there there's members of guilds, which which in some cases can live in both worlds. Uh, some uh, content creation companies, publishers, producers, studios use uh, only unionized or guild labor, so they use those contracts. Uh, those usually provide for minimum day rates or minimum weekly rates, uh, also sometimes minimum royalties. And of course, you know, the bigger you are, the more royalties and, you know, you can negotiate and you can negotiate for credits like executive producer or things of that nature and, and you know, points on merchandise and things like that. So there's a big difference between what Robert Downing did, you know, way back when and what Robert Downing Jr., uh, you know, could do by you by the time Iron Man three was was around. Um, anyway, I don't really think that we have the time or energy to go into that right now, and that's that's not really your ballywick. And frankly, it's not so much mine either, at least not these days. Um, so let's go into what is your ballywick, which is you. So let, let's hear the biography of Farzad, and you can take it into the law as early or late as you like. Yes. So, yeah. So my background is is a little bit different. Um, my country of origin is Afghanistan. Uh, I grew up in Germany and I studied law in Germany. I came. Um, I, I passed the bar exam in Germany and uh, started practicing also there in Germany um, as in-house counsel in the area of trademarks for uh, a IP service company. And uh, I decided to move to the U.S. and um, went back to law school, did my LLM in intellectual property law and, um, yeah, became an attorney in the U.S. and started practicing trademark and copyright law in the U.S. LLM is a master's degree for law for those who don't know. So it's most of us have a, well, we all have a JD and we all have passed the bar exam to call ourselves an attorney. You don't need to pass the bar to call yourself a JD. You just need to graduate law school. Um, but exactly. Yeah. But an LLM I, is a, I do not have a JD. Yeah. So <laughs> LLM is, is an advanced degree. And this, I presume, allows you to practice in these, in these federal areas. Uh, L, I mean, uh, so it, it for, uh, as a, as a foreign educated lawyer, you do not need to uh, go do everything at law school, uh, at least in some states. Uh, and New York, for example, uh, they have a requirement that if you have a certain amount of credits uh, and you went to an ABA-approved law school and did an LLM program or like whatever program, um, and you comply with those minimum requirements, like those credits and the specific uh, specific classes, then you are allowed to sit for the bar exam. Oh, okay. Um, so I didn't. I do not need the full JD because I am already. Uh, I have already a law degree from from a foreign foreign country. You have the equivalent Germany. degree in Germany. What's it called in in Germany, by the way? Uh, it's called actually state examination. There are two different state examination. Like number one, first state examination is basically the equivalent to the JD. That's the um, yeah, that's that's JD. That's the university part. Like at the university, that's subject matter basically. And then um, the second state examination, that's the that's kind of like the bar exam. Uh, so that includes the procedural stuff and the subject matter. Um, and 
Yeah. Why are the Germans so boring? State examination and state examination. I mean, <laughs> yes, the first state examination, second state examination. Oh, they're very, very efficient and economical. Not a lot of time spent work on the naming conventions there. Um, yeah, but it's yeah. it's also very tough. Like the first state examination, it takes a week. Uh, so you have one week uh, exams. I believe it's like, I don't know what it is, like three, four, five exams or something. And the second state examination, that takes like two weeks. So the bar, the bar exam is instead of two days, two weeks. Yeah. Our exams can take, a, can take a week. They can even take two weeks, depending on what classes you're in. Uh, probably longer, depending on the law school. But well, I'm talking about the bar exam. Yeah, no. The our, bar exam is like two days. Yeah, our, our, right. <laughs> our, our bar exam here in Maryland is two days. There were some people who were clever and, and took the, the Maryland and the D.C. bar at the same time. And so it was three days for them. Or some people did that with Pennsylvania or, or even further afar and, and, and flew. And, you know, very ambitious people. So good for them. Um, so that's interesting. So, yeah, so you were able to wave in because of you had the equivalent degree and a certain amount of hours under your belt that convinced the bar of, uh, of at least one state that that was eligible. And then you were able to apply for the federal bar or did you do it vice versa? Um, the, the federal bar? Well, did you join the federal bar first or the state bar first? The, well, I'm, I'm not understanding. Is there a federal bar? Uh-oh. <laughs> yes, there is. Yeah. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a member of the bar of Maryland. I'm a member of the bar of the District of Columbia. I'm also a member of the federal courts of Maryland and the federal courts for oh. the District of Columbia. I'm also somewhere, someplace, a member of the bankruptcy court uh, in Maryland. Now, with federal admission, you can waive into any federal district and the same applies for any bankruptcy court. But with state courts, that's not the case. Uh, I, think that, I think that I had to wait five years to waive into D.C. Uh, and that was maybe only because my multi-state score was high enough because I'm a genius. No, no, this is not unusual. Um yeah, I just had the New York New York State uh, bar examination, um, uh, and uh, I, I would have waived in in DC too. Uh, the only problem with that was DC has different requirements for foreign educated lawyers, so they require additional specific um, credits and specific classes, which I did not have because I did my LLM in intellectual property law instead of general U.S. law. Well, what happens when you are a New York licensed attorney for five years? Can you wave into D.C. then based on New York? No, I think there's a, if I'm not confusing, I believe there is a, there's a way to wave in in D.C. If you're working in D.C. for five years as an attorney, then you can wave in um, without any further complications. If my understanding is correct, I don't know if I got... Um, if I get that information right. I don't know either. I guess it, it apparently is not a major concern of yours because uh, like most same people, you're not anxious to wave into the D.C. and practice law in D.C. Ho- hopefully yeah, nobody yeah. heard that in D.C., but it's a nightmare. <laughs> and it depends what you're practicing, actually. I mean, if you're practicing trademark and, and, um, and copyright laws, federal law, you can practice it in any state. So... It, it should not matter. Oh, so your New York licensure is sufficient for that type of federal practice. But if you were going to go into the... So what about if something became litigation outside of the trademark office and you had to go to the United States District Court, say, Fourth Circuit or whatever? Um, 
would you then have to be, I mean, I know that you could be sponsored pro hoc vice. And, and for those who don't yeah. know, that's when a lawyer licensed in that state sponsors you and says, I can vouch for this attorney. Let them practice before this court for this case. Um, and, yeah. and that's usually granted. And usually the attorney license that say sort of has to sit there as sort of local counsel to make sure you're adhering to the rules, et cetera. Uh, you know, sometimes that gets dismissed or otherwise after a, you know, whatever the judge deems an appropriate period of time, or sometimes it's the entire duration. But, um, or are you able to practice in the United States Federal District Court because you are the attorney of record in New York for the federal trademark? Yes. So my, my understanding is that you are allowed to practice before federal courts with your, with any bar examination you have in from any state that allows you to practice before federal courts, but not before state courts. So if there are any state claims, um, um, I mean, many, many, many states, they have their own also trademark law, for example. I know that that uh, New York has some some trademark rules and you're basing your claims on, on state claims. I couldn't, I would not be able to practice outside of New York. So um, sue someone before, uh, before the, before the um, state courts. But if it was a trademark claim, you believe you could? Yes. Okay. I don't know whether you're right or wrong, so I'm not going to push it any further. Uh, all right. So what are some of the main differences between German jurisprudence and American um, jurisprudence? You know, we, we here in America, we get our law mostly from British common law. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of places do. Some people might have heard of you know, may hear that Louisiana is, is different. They might hear Napoleonic code because that's Louisiana is the only state based on French civil code. The basic sure. difference is, is British common law is that stare decisis, meaning that you're to respect the decisions of prior courts, um, you know, unless there's some compelling reason not to. French civil law is the, the rule is that you don't have to. Every, every case is a case of first impression, or although from a, you know, practical standpoint, they probably mostly adhere to it just for sanity's sake. Um, but is there, what's the difference between German jurisprudence and what we might consider American and British common law? We're going to ignore Louisiana for the moment. Yeah. And I think uh, you kind of summed it up like that. The, the most important factor in U.S. is a common law, a uh, common law country. Uh, Germany is a civil, civil, has a civil code. Um, so just to clarify in that regard, I mean, most of the countries are nowadays uh, a combination of the two. So there is no strict civil code uh, and no strict common law. The jurisprudence in Germany, like from the highest courts, it has it has the value of, of being basically law too. So in that regard, yes, the jurisprudence is, is important in Germany too. Uh, but I would say like just from, from practicing here and also the... The, the case law, etc. You have a little bit more. Uh, everything is is more codified in laws, so they have it, it, literally everything and all the all the claims, everything, everything is in, in those law books. And you have that a little bit lesser here in the US. So I see that in privacy law. It's in in Germany. It's based on 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 their amendments. And they have specific laws and, and according to the amendments and the jurisprudence of, of, of the, it's called the Second Amendment, uh, or it's called Article in, in, in Germany. It's, it's, 
the amendment is called article <laughs> so it's article two and um, everything is based on that and you you just have to read the jurisprudence and and, and the, the law and you understand that and privacy law is based on that in the u.s privacy law privacy law is based on partly jurisprudence partly HIPAA law partly like it's splittered up everywhere and the preamble off of the amendment or whatever they're they're basing it so it's 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 a little bit lesser less i would say structured um but yeah so germany jurisprudence uh, plays a role um civil code is playing of course also a role a, a bit stronger role than in the us i would say in the us it's a little bit the courts are a little bit more flexible uh regarding regarding basically um interpreting the code of course they're not fully flexible <laughs> because that's that's the job of congress to make the laws but much more flexible than in germany i would say and uh, another big example i would say is a very huge difference is for example in trademark law a common law country you have you have uh, a common law trademark in germany no common law country uh, so let me explain first what is a common law trademark a common law trademark is if you do not file a registration for it and you're just using a brand as a as your trademark in connection with specific goods or services so that gives you a certain local geographically local um, common law rights so you have a common law trademark just based on use without filing it anywhere in germany you don't have that it's not a common law country so um, either you file a trademark registration with a patent trademark office in germany and you have a registration or you don't and then you don't have any rights is does germany have its own trademark laws or is it part of the eu block um or do uh the countries each have their own still yeah the countries they have uh, they have all their own laws so so germany has their own um trademark law so if you want to file just uh, a trademark in germany you can file it just in germany if you're not interested in the rest of the eu okay. if you it is of course part of the eu so if you file a trademark uh, application with the eu ipo the eu intellectual property office then you receive protection uh, for all the eu countries so that's the difference. Um, of course, it might be a little bit more expensive than just one country. But if you're if you're filing for four, five, six countries, it might get almost as expensive as an EU trademark. So in most of the cases, it's worth it to file for for an EU. So if you so if you file directly with the EU, you are covered through everyone in the EU block. But it's right. you're paying for that coverage. It costs more than. Uh, most, if not all, member countries individually, and maybe you know a, a handful of member countries individually in the aggregate. So it's an economic decision. So okay, but, yeah, yeah. And, but it is cheaper, so especially with the so-called WIPO system, Madrid system. Uh, it, it makes it easier um, to file in, in those international countries through one organization and. File, file basically or expand your trademark in those designated countries. I know that, that your family left Afghanistan when you were five. Um, so your recollections of Afghanistan are probably, uh, you know, faint, faint if any. I don't know if you've gone back to visit or not, but do you have any knowledge on the 
legal structure of Afghanistan versus the U.S. or Britain or, and any more than anyone else? Or no, that's just never been part of your world? Not really. I mean, I don't have uh, much knowledge. The only thing I know is that they're kind of, um, they're, they're, they're many countries that kind of split up uh, religion and and state. Um, those, those factors that kind of split it up and said, uh, we don't want them together, uh, which makes sense. And I know that the, that was uh, not that was not the case in in, in Afghanistan. So right. well, there's Taliban and then post Taliban and pre Taliban and now Taliban again. There's uh, sh- yeah. Sharia law. Uh, it, it's also getting debatable sure. sometimes yeah. here in, uh, <laughs> in the U.S. as well. So I don't know. Yeah. That's 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 yeah. That church and state uh, division was a Pretty good idea. So, so sorry for anyone who doesn't agree, but you're just wrong. Um, <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Whatever. I'll, if I, I lose, if I lose listeners on that hill, that's okay. That in a very, very like drastic way. What's that? I know that Turkey did that in a very drastic way to split up religion from state. Yes, uh, they so did. I don't know if you heard about that. But like um, Ataturk, so the, the, the and and I'm just that's just hearsay. So if if anyone from Turkey is actually hearing, then they're like, "Hey, dude, you're wrong. Sorry for that." But that's just what I heard from from friends um, who are Turkish, and they told me that Ataturk, the basically the, the father of of, of of Turkey, that he um, he wanted to split up. He was very modern, uh, very modern, and thought very modern. And he wanted to split up uh, the state from religion, uh, just separate these two these two entities from each other. Um, and he just brought in all the religious people, all the mullahs and and well the the Islamic priests basically brought them all into one building and just blew them all up. Yeah, in in very very simplistic terms, I understand that's the difference between a sultanate and a caliphate. Uh, or an emirate and a caliphate, uh, though, though with the anything where there's a monarch, uh, uh, that that distinction can be extremely blurred. But I, I think sultanate versus caliphate is at the sort of universal. I'm going to say sort of because I don't know 100. Um, percent All right, you like it here? You like it here in the U.S.? You having fun? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Better than Germany? Boo Germany? Warmer than Germany? Yeah, okay, warmer, warmer than Germany. Food better? <laughs> better food better you know who's oh, better we're better i would say there's much much more diverse food here in, in, in the u.s in germany um you uh, i mean you have, you just have lesser exposure to like other foods and here in the u.s you can literally find everything yes. like from each region of the world you'll find a restaurant here yes now, so, i don't i don't want to start an international instance we like germany uh, you know especially lately um you know Last few decades or so, very good. Um, so, yay Germany, and I've got plenty of German in me, so you know, can't really, can't really bag on them too much. Um, so, yeah, I, I thank you for us. We went overtime last time, so I really made a pledge to myself to not go overtime this time. So we are, where are we at here? We're still under an hour, just over forty-five minutes. So, unless you have any things that that you really want to share with the world. 
um, why don't you just tell people where they can, first of all, if you do have anything you want to share, share. And secondly, if, if people can support you, find you, follow you, uh, where can they do so? Absolutely. Yeah, no. Uh, so we didn't start with a disclaimer, so let's end it with a disclaimer. Oh, so, so smart. This is not legal advice. <laughs> this is just for educational purposes. And uh, we're, uh, I am, or we are not uh, representing the thoughts or ideas necessarily of, of, our, of our law firm, Dunlop, Bennett and Ludwig. And yeah, if you have any questions, if, or if you have any, uh, if you want to ask certain questions or, or just talk to me and, and ask, ask something or not ask something, uh, you can feel free to reach out to me. Uh, the name is Farzad um, Panshiri. F-A-R-Z-A-D-P-A-N-J-S-H-I-R-I. And you can find me um, on the Dunlap, Bennett, and Ludwig website or on LinkedIn. So, yeah, happy to connect. Feel free to reach out anyone and um, always happy to connect to any colleagues. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Farzad, thank you for your generosity. And to the audience, make sure to check them out. Give them a follow on LinkedIn or professional network, etc. Um as far as everything else, I hope that you enjoy the show and I hope that you give us five stars and rate and review this the show and share with your friends. And if you like this content, you're checking out for the first time. Garden Views tends to be topical, not always legal, but there's a whole lot of it on there. Um, a lot of stuff about extrapolating to law of the space and, and other legal issues that I think are of sort of national or maybe even international interest. Uh, but there's some other stuff too. There's some random interviews and I just dropped a show on the moon, which was uh, more, you know, which was almost completely fact-based as opposed to my show on Mars called the red planet, which was probably 88% fact-based, but enough fiction that I decided to put it on garden of doom instead. And you can find garden views and garden of doom on the garden of doom feed where you can find all your fine podcasts or at the following networks, the PW hustle, the PWC Network, the Wrestling Soup Network, Hameen Media Group. Um, and I think that's it for the networks for those shows. Um, if you want to look for me in other places, at MD on Twitter. I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, and I'm on Facebook and someplace else. Can't remember right now, so it's probably not that important. And whatever song comes after this, I don't own the rights to this music, but we're not monetizing it and it's de minimis and all of that stuff, but I'm probably committing copyright infringement anyway, but educational purposes, fair use. Oh, right. This is for educational purposes. It's fair use and the song is going to be tied in. So thank you. See, he's a good lawyer right there. Jumped right in and, and protected his. See, even a lawyer representing himself has a fool for a client and you just saw that in action. This was a teachable moment, folks. Teachable moment. All right. Thank you, Farzad, both times. And thank you all for listening in. And you'll hear us next time in Garden Views. And hopefully you'll check out Garden of Doom as well. And you'll enjoy that content too. Thank you.